0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I very much appreciate what Jody said at the beginning of the service. Um, more and more as I've gotten older, I realize that the dissonance, the rude jerk, the I don't know if any of you have ever caught a train. Do you know what I'm talking about? Catching a train. Uh, when I was a little kid, we had train tracks at the bottom of our block and I used to go down there and hop on the train to go over to the park. And you know, if you hop into your father's arms when you're a little kid, your father's arms are give and take. There's nothing about a train that's give and take at all. And so you better be prepared for your arm to be pulled out of your socket. You know what I'm saying? Because the train doesn't care about you. (laughs) And it's steel. And uh, I think often that coming into the church of Jesus Christ on a Sunday morning is such a radical yank on us. Because we spend our week having everybody flatter us or just be mean or something. And so we come in the house of God and it's intimate, it's vulnerable, and I think the most difficult thing for us, although the intimacy and love is difficult for us, actually. (laughs) A lot of us would rather not be around intimacy and love because we don't have it the rest of the week and it would just be easier to never see it, you know. But I think the most difficult thing is the authority. And uh, it's interesting, I've been reading an essay written back a hundred years ago, published in a journal of American history by Oxford, and it's an essay about the role of the pastors in in the Revolutionary War, and in the writing of the Constitution. And the principle of, um, eh, I hesitate to call it rebellion, rebellion. But the principle of saying no to authorities over us is absolutely foundational to what it means to be an American. <laughs> From our Revolutionary War. You all see this, right? Revolution, you know, what are you revolting against? revolting against the king back in England. And so when we come into the church and we have the Bible opened, and the older we get, the more the Bible's going to be contrary to our culture. You know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are not going to get everybody to honor Scripture, <laughs> you know. That's one thing we can all agree on, right? And so it's going to be a rude awakening when we come into the church because it's going to be like hopping on a train and your arm, you know, like, whoa! He stands up and asks us to listen to him and he says, that? Did you hear what he said to them? I couldn't believe it. It's like, and they just sat there and took it. Well, listen. Before I preach the Bible, I go under its authority myself, okay? And so I look at myself every week and I say, okay, I hate this and I hate this and I'm scared about this. And so then I preach to myself when I preach to you. And if you know me personally, you know that that's true, although I am a sinner. (laughs) Okay. So when you come in here each week, please, God is the authority here. And his word is what we submit to. We don't submit to even the United States Constitution. And this is no living document. You know how they say that about the Constitution. It's a living document. This is no living document. It's dead. Now, by that, I only mean that God is not adding to it. And it's written in stone. And it will never change. Okay? So it's dead. But the Bible says about itself that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between joints, between marrow and bone. It's a double-edged sword. It's a hammer. It's a fire. These are all the words that, that Scripture uses to describe itself. And what that means is being dead, it lives. And so when you come in here and you're scandalized by what is said here, it's usually not me. I mean, it can be me, but usually it's not. What's really scandalous in this church is the word of God, okay? And so when you come in here, love that part of our worship because that's the part that will drive you to see your sin and then to make your peace with God. Every week what we want is for you to hear this Bible read and preached in such a way that you discover more every week that you really are hopeless, that's the goal. Your husband does want you to admit that you really are hopeless. And your wife wants you to admit that you really are, and all your children would be so relieved. Hey, hey, hey. Would be so relieved if you would just admit to your children as a dad that you're hopeless. Hopeless. So that's the purpose. And so every week, we're going to have Jody remind you, this is not, this is not like, a, okay, this is not a bungee cord. <laughs> you know? You jump on a bungee cord, and it'll take maybe 100 feet to stop you. This is a railroad car. And it's not going to stop for you, because the whole point is for you to have your arm pulled out of its socket. Because God is speaking. And God is not sitting around waiting to know what you think of what he says. Right? It's not Facebook. God doesn't want you to punch like. God wants you to say, forgive me. I repent. Okay. All right. Well, with that, um, let's read God's word. Those of you that come every week know we're in 1 Corinthians 13. And this is the love chapter of Scripture. And let's read it again, and then we'll look at the first four verses. I think, I don't know if you have it up there, but let's read all of 1 Corinthians 13. Nathan, come on up here. This is my grandson. And let's have you read scripture to us. Oh wait, that's Romans. Hold on. Okay. Okay. Can you use the handheld? Is it on? Test. Yeah. Say testing. Testing. Yeah, right on. Okay. Say this is the word of God and it's eternally true beforehand and then at the end say this is the word of God and they will say be to God. Thanks be to God. All right, go ahead. This is
1: the word of the Lord and is eternally true. First Corinthians 13. If I speak of the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank Thank you,
0: son. He used to ask to read the Bible for devotions when we'd have dinner. And I thought, why not have them come up and read? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for our little children who are becoming men and women. We pray that you will transfer to them the love of Jesus Christ, and that you will make them holy, and that we will be able to watch them pick up the baton and carry it now. And Father, we thank you for this chapter, and we pray that we will honor it. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing to the Corinthians Church, and those of you who have been here for months know the character of the Corinthian Church, but I want to say to those of you who are not normally here, the Corinthian Church, like every church, had a personality, and You know, you can often tell the personality of a home by looking at its yard. Some homes have curb appeal, and some homes have curb repulsion. And often, the curb appeal will tell you that there's no love in the home, because it's perfect. And generally, homes that are perfect don't have love. You know, you walk in and everything's in its place, and you know that You know, there's no life in the home. Well, some homes have dead dogs under dead cars. And the home looks nasty. And you know it's likely that it's a flea-bitten life emotionally in that home, right? Well, churches have the same thing. There are a lot of churches that are known by preachers to be preacher killers, And they just go from preacher to preacher. If you look at the average tenure of each preacher, you'll see that it's between two and three years. And the churches just keep. And the reason is that the church hates each other, and the pastor inevitably gets caught in the in the grinder, right? The Philippian church wasn't like this. The Philippian church, so Philippians is the book written to that church. We know that church was very sweet. How do we know it? Well, we know it because it's the only church that the Apostle Paul allowed to give him money. Isn't that interesting? He wouldn't take other people's money because he knew if he took their money that that would cause him to have no authority. That he would have used his capital up taking money from them and they wouldn't listen to him. Uh, The Corinthian church was just nasty, and we know what the Corinthian church was like because the love chapter occurs in 1 Corinthians, and we would be tempted to think that the reason 1 Corinthians 13 is in the book to Corinthians is because the Corinthians were such a loving church, but no, it was because they weren't loving at all that the Apostle Paul had to write the, the love chapter to them. Okay? Now, how were they not loving? Well, they weren't loving because there was sexual immorality. And don't ever, 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 ever forget that the reason God has laws about sex is that sex is an unbelievably hurtful thing. Okay, You ever want to know this? Come into my office when I'm counseling a young man or woman who was molested when they were little. And you will never look at sexual immorality again. Okay, the same. There's nothing that shows the absence of love and the presence of indifference and hatred more than sexual immorality. Don't ever believe your husband if he tells you he loves you, but he's committing adultery. He not only doesn't love you, he doesn't love his children. When Bill Clinton committed adultery, it was his daughter Chelsea that he didn't love. Not just Hillary. Okay? And the same with Donald Trump. Now, they committed sexual immorality they didn't love. They came to the Lord's table and the, and the people who were rich got drunk and fat. At the Lord's table, this is one of the reasons the church has gone to such as a simple, simple meal with tiny portions. All right, And so obviously they didn't have love if they used this table where we proclaim the love of Jesus Christ and his death for everybody to see. If you divide at this table, and and, and it's interesting when churches do it at this table, we're reflecting the disciples who were told that when Jesus had told them he was about to die, they went to Jerusalem, they had a meal, and it says in that meal that there arose a striving, a fighting amongst them, as to which of them was the greatest. So the Corinthian church was like 10 for 10. Sexual morality, fighting at the Lord's table. At the literal table they fought. They were oppressing each other. They went to court against each other, so you had the scandal of the court, the secular court having Christians fighting and having a secular judge who didn't know God having to decide between them. They were unbelievably proud about their intellect. If you read ancient history and hear about where Corinth came from, Corinth was a city that was just filled with wealth culturally financially, in every form. And so the Corinthians thought that they were God's gift to mankind. And so that came into the church, where some of them felt they were more God's gift to mankind than others of them. And so they were very proud of their brains, of their intellects. Um, And then there are special gifts God gives the church, gifts of healing, of tongues, of preaching, all these gifts— and they used those gifts to get a leg up on each other, you know? Well, God gave me the gift of tongues. Well, that's nothing. God gave me the gift of prophecy. Well, that's nothing. I have the gift of faith. And they were even fighting over which leader they thought was best. And so there was Paul. There was Apollos. And so there were people that said, I'm of Apollos. And there were other people that said, I'm of Paul. And then Honestly, these are the most disgusting people. There were others that even had the audacity to say, I'm of Jesus. Now, you would think, well, that would be right to say I'm of Jesus. No, it's wrong. You know, Jesus, his reputation is not at stake with you. I hate to break it to you. You know, you are an example of his unbelievable kindness and mercy. (laughs) You're not his advocate. You just try to limit the damage you do to his reputation, (laughs) right? I was in an elders meeting once where there was this incredible fight going on between the elders. And that's really what elders do is they try to care for you by arguing. You know, eldership is pastoral care by arguing. I'll get back to that in a while. And so we were having this argument and then it was time to pray. And so we went to prayer and one of the elders started just throwing thunderbolts and lightning at the other men in the meeting as he prayed to God, you know, it's just like "Oh Lord, you know that Tim Bailey's an idiot (laughs) you know and you know that you would never agree with him when he said such and such and it went on and on I'm sitting there like, you know, on the one hand it seems sacrilegious to stop a man in his prayer but on the other hand I don't think anybody should pray like that, you know, and I'm the moderator I have the job and Sophia just said, look, stop praying, <laughs> you know, you can't do that in prayer. And God blessed the man. He didn't get mad at me. That was the most amazing thing, <laughs> you know. So we had this church where I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Jesus, you know. It's like, oh, please. So they're even using Jesus' name to establish their superiority to each other. Now, I could keep going, but this is Corinth. This is the nature of the church. No matter what it is, they fight over it. Okay. And so Paul's been dealing with the, the, the incest, the sexual perversion. He's been dealing with going to court against each other. He's been dealing with the scandal, of the Lord's table. He's been dealing with the, you know, I speak in tongues. He's been dealing with, I'm a Paul, I'm Paul, I'm Jesus, Right? Boom, 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 boom. He's a good workman. Right? You with me? Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden, he stops. And it's like the Apostle Paul remembers the big picture. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is. It's like, dude, would you love each other? <laughs> you know? Would you love Would you love? You know, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is. And it's not there because all of a sudden he felt the need to like give out cotton candy. It's because he's been disciplining, 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 and then he really disciplines. This did not come to them softly. This hit them just like that. He starts out, if I speak with the tongue, what was he just doing? He was just saying, look, the gift of tongues doesn't establish your superiority. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and don't have love, what am I? And so now we get cosmic. And listen, when you raise your children, always follow the example of the Apostle Paul as a mother, as a father, as an older brother. Do you hear me, Jonathan? It is your job in your home, in your workplace, to establish peace. And it's hard work. And the Apostle Paul is your model. He will not tolerate division in fighting. He will not tolerate. I see so many of you as parents who are willing to have your kids fight. There's no excuse for it. None, none, none. Absolutely no excuse for it. Imagine if the Apostle Paul had let the Corinthians fight. What does it say about you and your husband if your children fight? Come on. The Apostle Paul goes through every issue. He comes down into the basement. There's screaming. And immediately what he sees is, well, one of them looks guilty. And then he sees another one screaming her head off. And then he sees the other one skulking over against the wall, hoping they escape whatever's coming down for the screaming one and the guilty one, right? (laughs) And the mother and dad come in, and they look at the guilty one, and they just yell at the guilty one. Stupid. The one that's screaming needs to be disciplined, too. And then, what about all the rest of them? How did it happen that you end up having the middle children fighting while Jonathan, the oldest son, is in the room? So he needs to get, to get it too, right? Right? There's more than enough sin to go around in every marriage and every room of children that are fighting. It's likely that there's nobody in that room that has not contributed to the fighting. Starting with the oldest child. Starting with the mother. Starting with the Father, and honestly, honestly, starting with me, because I'm not telling you that you must have peace in your children. (laughs) Do you see this? God uses all of us to bring love, and love is not sentimental. Love is not John Lennon. Love is hard work. It's really hard. So this isn't cotton candy, this isn't the velveteen rabbit, this is not ah, gishy goo, goo, goo. Love is patient. Love is kind. Okay? Now what is patience and kindness? Isn't there, yeah, yeah. Okay, what is patience and kindness? Well, You all know that I'm a very impatient man, right? Everybody know that. Go ahead, you can put your hand up. I'm gonna try to be more straightforward in my preaching so that you can put your hand up and I won't make fun of you, you, okay? Okay, now I'm impatient. Do you know why I believe in Presbyterian government? What is Presbyterian government? Well, Presbyterian is from the Greek word presbyteros which means elder. Presbyteroi is elders plural. I believe in the plurality of the eldership. That's how this church differs from other churches. Other churches have one man in the church who's been appointed by one man above them, who's been appointed by one. It's extremely hierarchical and there isn't a plurality of the eldership. Most Baptist churches there is one man and he's the pope. I believe in the Presbyterian form of government because in the local church, there is no discipline that goes on in the church. Well, I shouldn't say none. But generally, discipline only happens when you have everybody in the elders' board agreeing. Okay? Now, what this means for you is you are the subject of discussion in the board of elders. Okay? If you didn't know this all of you, we have talked about you in an elders' meeting. (laughs) Okay? Does that make you feel better? (laughs) Okay? It's true. There are a few people here we haven't talked about, but we've talked about you, George. We have. Now, in an elders' meeting, you will have men who are impatient. And you will have men who Haunting are able to pull a trigger, but otherwise not so much. Men who are unbelievably patient. And so what are elders' meetings? Elders' meetings are where men who have too much patience and men that have too little patience argue about what to do about you. And that's, I hope from now on, you just understand that's what it is to be an elder, that's all. It doesn't get any more sophisticated than that. And so every time we meet, there are certain people who are sinning in certain ways, or are weak in certain ways, or have certain needs, and there is a debate over how to handle it. And often the debate does get tense. If you've had children, you know that it's often difficult to know how to deal with your children. And so I believe in the plurality of the eldership because you have impatient people and two patient people. And as those people argue with each other, there is a meeting of minds, and the sum of the wisdom of the individuals is greater than any one person, right? Now, here's the good thing about that. If the elders come to you, usually... It's after an unbelievable amount of time. Usually, the elders have been so patient that you would think that they don't know you're alive. That's normal. It's normal, for instance, if somebody is going to be admonished. You know, an admonishment is when, well, my mother, when she would come to me, she'd say, Tim, forget about yourself. You know, Usually, if an elder comes and says, forget about yourself, you have already been the subject of much discussion in an elder's board. And so don't think that because the elders come to you and say, you think too much about yourself, that that must mean those elders are impatient. No, no. It's good to be under a Presbyterian system of government because it automatically causes things to be unbelievably patient. Okay? You see you don't define what patient is by saying that if anybody admonishes you, they're impatient, you know? No. Now, there is one circumstance in which the elders will not be patient with you. And does anybody know what that is? There is one set of circumstances where the elders will not be patient with you. Let me read from the book of Titus. It says in the book of Titus this, near the end of the book. It says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It's one of the only places in Scripture where we have a numerical value given, all right? And it says, and the word factious means divisive. So reject a divisive man after a first and second warning. So listen, if you want the elders to just come after you right away, all you have to do is lie to other people in the church about what somebody else said in such a way as to try to divide them. And guess what? The elders will be at your doorstep right away. Now, why are they doing that? Is it because the elders like talking to people? No. Uh Uh-uh. We don't like it. Okay, that's why it takes a long time for us to do it. Is it because the elders love you that they're coming to you when you're a factious person? Mm, yeah, but no. It's because the sheep are at stake when you have division being promoted by somebody. You have to think often about the church as just being a flock of sheep, and in every flock of any kind of animal, you have one animal that's a bully, and it's constantly trying to throw its weight around. Even if you have two blue jays, they're both bullies. You know what I'm talking about? Blue jays are the most obnoxious animals on the face of the earth. I mean, they are. It's just awful. And that's what it's like when a divisive man is in the church. The Bible says, warn him once, then a second time, then cut him off. Have nothing to do with him. If that happens to you, it's not because we're impatient, it's because we love the flock. And we will not have all the sheep on edge because of your presence in the church. Does this make sense? So, love is patient. And immediately we start accusing other people of being impatient. You see how this works? Well, God says that if you really love me, you be patient with me. Now realize that if you say that to somebody, you judge people being impatient with you. Realize that you're admitting there's something wrong with you, right? If you say people aren't patient enough with you, you're admitting there's something wrong with you. Do you all see this? You know, otherwise, why do they have to be patient with you? (laughs) All right. Listen. Last Sunday in our in our congregational meeting we talked about noise in the in the church service nobody can accuse us of not being patient with noise in this church it's often a bit like a uh, a stockyard in here you know you know and you
1: know,
0: you know it's like yikes sometimes i have to like You know, sometimes I have trouble thinking about what I'm saying because of the noise in here. And it's especially bad because the HVAC system in the bridge season isn't on. So right now it's much more sensitive to noise than it is normally because if this system is on, we have a threshold of 65 decibels of noise. And in 65 decibels, we can have as many of you as want to go out and take a pee, go ahead and do it. But in bridge season, all of a sudden, it's like, yikes, yikes, yikes. So listen, we're not impatient, but there comes a point at which if you're disruptive, we will talk to you, okay? And listen, would your dad do that? I hope you had a good dad. You know, if you, if you start whining about needing to stop the car and go to the restroom when you're 15 minutes on the interstate, what's your dad going to say to you, you know? Are you kidding me? I have to stop my entire car... So that you can, and you just were home. Did you think, you know? Okay. Patience is love. Love is patient. Patience is not being impatient. What is impatience? Impatience is, listen, honestly, if you make your car stop right after you've left home for a vacation where you're going to drive to Colorado, that is impatience. You're the one that's impatient. Why? Well, because you're assuming that your needs and your schedule matter more than everybody else in that car. Now, we wouldn't say it's impatient, right? You say to your daughter, well, you know, be patient. I'm not going to stop for three hours. Well, (laughs) have fun. Knock (laughs) knock your socks off, you know. Um, Love is patient, so that means that the person that loves puts other people's priorities and time above their own. Okay? Love is what? It's patient. Mothers, I know it's hard. You must be patient with your children. You must not think that because your husband's going to come home hangry that that means you have justification for slapping your children or yelling at them. You're to be patient with your children. If your child cries for half an hour, it does not justify your anger. Mothers, be patient with your children. Mothers, be patient with your adult children. It took you a long time to learn how to trust God. It's going to take them a long time. Fathers, be patient with your sons. Oh, man, that's my worst memory of myself. Well, there are a lot of bad ones, but I'm telling you, teaching my sons to work? I'm just glad they're not in this church listening. There was one trip, driving out to Pennsylvania to a conference where I was teaching my son. (laughs) You know, teaching my son. And the subject was church history. And it was Joseph, and I think within half an hour I had him crying five times. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that's real helpful, Dad. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad to learn about the Church of Jesus Christ. And if he made the mistake of giving me a straight-edge screwdriver instead of a Phillips, oh. Ho, ho, ho. You know? Listen, dads, be patient with your son. Because your son, deep inside of himself, wants to be just like his daddy, even if his daddy is a jerk. And so you have a willing son. And so work with him. You know, you've got his heart, so don't yell at him and don't reduce him to tears, Now, it is encouraging for you to hear. I hope that I did apologize to my son, five. You know, I kept saying, oh, Joseph, I'm so sorry. What am I doing? (laughs) You know. So it kind of finally, and we had a good trip, but don't do that. You know, sometimes a dad says to his sons, do as I say, not as I do. And so I'm telling you as dads, don't do as I did because your son, you have his heart. So work with him. Teach him. Be patient with them. Then second, love is what? Love is patient. Love is kind. Patience is putting up with. Kindness is acting in a positive way towards somebody that doesn't deserve your positive actions. So you show kindness when you don't give them what they deserve. But instead, you do kind things to them. Okay? Now again, it is not up to the person that you're doing it to judge whether you're being kind. If you live for likes on Facebook, you cannot honor God today. Christians do all kinds of things that are very kind, that the entire world calls hate today. We have had many people in this church and and the former one who are homosexual, many. And when I say to them, if you are a homosexual person engaged in sexual immorality, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. How many people today are prepared to hear that as kindness? Kindness. No, they think that it's, uh, that it's culture war. They think that it's uh, superiority. They think that it's... Uh, what? Yeah, judgmental. They don't... What? Homophobic. Yeah, homophobic. But the truth is, it's not that. And if I were to say to this congregation... If you are an adulterer, and you are unfaithful to your wife, and you will not repent, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, all of a sudden, all the women would be giving me a hand. You know? Listen, all sexual sin is entirely destructive. It makes not an ounce of difference what it is. And so when we say no to sins of people we love, we are being kind. Why? Well... Because they don't deserve to hear, no. They deserve to just be let to go on their way and to be lost eternally. God doesn't owe us saving us. God doesn't owe us sending a prophet to us to rebuke us like Nathan would David. God doesn't owe us anything, okay? So when God sends prophets to us who say, Repent, he will take you. It's God's kindness to us. You know what it says? I think it's one of the most extraordinary things that's said in Scripture. Do you know what it says? It says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. God's kindness. And listen, if you're going to call homosexuals to repent today, lesbians and gays, you have no reason to do it except that you love them and want to see them saved. Because you ain't going to get no love from the world for doing it. And in a few years, you will be jeopardizing your job, your ability to earn money, your home. And in a few years, it will be prison. Make no mistake about this. This is where we're headed. And so kindness is not defined by a sinner. Kindness is not defined by a proud person. Kindness is not defined by your mother. Kindness is a very, very hard. Uh, what's the word? Um, I don't want to say trait. Virtue. Hard virtue. Okay? Kindness is wonderfully hard. Love is patient. And love is kind. Okay? Love is what? Patient. Love is what? It's kind. Now, let me end with this. When I was young, a young husband, I realized that I had a temper and was impatient. And so I had many occasions to apologize to my wife. And, you know, it doesn't take very long of living in marriage before you begin to despair of yourself. <laughs> you, know, you just look at yourself, and you never look at yourself before you do it. You always look at yourself after you do it. And I'd say, Mary Lee, I'm sorry. Well, after a while, even sorry gets old. And I began to think, how can Mary Lee forgive me anymore? And then I remember saying to her, lover, I know I've said I'm sorry before, but I don't have anything to hold out to you other than I'm sorry. I can't do anything else. I'm trying to get ahead of the ball, (laughs) you know, to not be impatient, to not get angry, but it seems like that's not going very well. But what I can tell you is that Scripture says that he that began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And so all I can do is hold out to you the promise of God that he will change me. Okay? And in my case, the largest thing that changed me was a terrible, terrible four years I spent at a church. And I just was being attacked right and left. And if I had gotten mad every time, I'd be dead, you know. And often being attacked for things I hadn't done that were wrong, you know, it was just a nasty church. And when I left that church, it took me quite a while to be willing to drive by it on the road because of my bitterness and anger. And then one day, I thought about the church, and I thought, oh, thank God I was at that church. <laughs> it was 10 years, actually. I realized that I would never have been changed so that I had more self-control when people were angry, when they were yelling, I realized that there was some spot that I had discovered that I could go to at times like that, you know? And just, now now mind you, I'm not saying that I'm now a patient man and I don't lose my temper, but I'm just saying I now know there exists a place you can go, (laughs) you know? And be patient and not get angry. There's no way you're going to learn to be patient and kind without apologizing. Okay? Now, here's the end. If you don't ever apologize to me, I got your number. I got your number. If you never say you're sorry to me, you never say it to your wife or husband or children. I've noticed this. I've noticed that there are an awful lot of you who never say you're sorry to me. You think that your life is lived to hear me say I'm sorry to you. An awful lot of you have had me say I'm sorry to you. I, I'm sad about how few of you have ever said it to me. So it must mean that I am the biggest sinner in the church. <laughs> right? I must be the biggest sinner in the church. Well, okay, I'll cop to that. It's not about me. That's not why I'm bringing it up. It's not because I sit at home. <laughs> Now I'm on my tractor with my earplugs in. <laughs> the reason I'm bringing it up is, if I never hear you as a congregation apologize to me, I don't think you ever apologize to your wife or your husband. And honestly, I think the problem is more on the part of the women in this church than it is the men. There are precious few women who know how to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And listen, it is disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting. And you go, well, you're not being patient now. And it's like, okay. All right, it's not disgusting. It's deplorable. It's sickening. It's nauseating how righteous you women think you are. You are not righteous. You keep track of every offense. You want to know what I did wrong at any particular year since I've been married, just ask my wife. Right, love? <laughs> I have this rose memory, rose colored memory, and she it's not rose. I don't know what color it is, but it ain't rose. <laughs> so listen. Women. Women, are y'all there? Here's a man talking to women. Would you please see your sin? And would you ask your husbands and your sons and your children to forgive you? Would you please? Okay? Okay? Ah. All right, I'm coming again. Women. Would you please confess your impatience and your unkindness to the men in your life? Okay, I'm coming again. (laughs) Women. Would you please confess your impatience and unkindness to the men of your life? Okay, thanks, sissies. Sisters. Now, uh, if the elders would come, we have the privilege of eating the Lord's Supper. And listen, this is a family meal, and it's intimate... Because what we do at this table is we tell the world that we believe in the death of Jesus. And that seems like a weird thing to tell. Why does the world need to know that we believe in the death of Jesus? Well, when we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, you know those words we use every single Lord's Supper. When we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes... again what we're proclaiming is that there is no hope for us do you understand that what we say when we come to the Lord's table is i am hopeless and the death of christ is my righteousness we proclaim his death until we come again we're not proclaiming his death because we love blood and and, and misery and suffering we're proclaiming his death because we know it's the only thing that will wash us. And so the people that come to this table are people who have seen their impatience, seen their unkindness, seen that they're not loving at all. And they go to God and they say, Please, please, I hate myself. Please forgive me. And would you make me to have the love you have? And they trust in the cross, they trust in the love of God through Jesus who dies for us. They trust that to be their righteousness, to be their goodness, to be their works, okay? Their good works, his works or our good works. And then, having given up all hope in ourselves, they come to the table and it's the body and blood of Jesus, that's the symbolism here. And we eat and we drink and by doing that we say there's no hope for me. So when you come forward, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm hopeless. And somebody else says, no, you go before me because I'm more hopeless than you are, right? And we're we're a line of hopeless people. And I don't mean hopeless in the sense of having faith in Jesus. I mean hopeless in the sense of having any hope in ourselves. Okay? And so... um, It's a family meal, and you know the first thing you do when you get hopeless about yourself and trust in Jesus is you get baptized, unless your parents had you baptized. And you come to the elders and you say, I realize it's hopeless. Would you let me to the table? So you do have to go to the elders or you've done it in another church. But you have to come to the table through the elders because the symbolism of having the elders sit here is that you know that they are to guard this table from you. If you're hopeful about yourself, you may not come. And so they'll say, no, 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 you're way too hopeful about yourself, right? But they also have the privilege of saying to you, come because you are qualified because you see yourself the way you are. So if you are not yet welcome to the table, come to any of the elders and talk to them. And then they'll get a couple of elders together and sit down and talk to you and ask you to go to a class for a few weeks. And they'll test you, and you say, oh, please, I don't need any more tests in my life. And I say, well, it'll be nice. Trust me. And then, you're welcome to the Lord's table, and you can eat, and you can drink, and you can join the company of all the people through all the ages who have proclaimed the death of Jesus. Remember Rita Cuffey? You've heard me talk about Rita. You remember her? I was reminded this last week. I don't remember why, but somebody said, let's sing Nothing But the Blood. I don't remember where it was. Oh, I know. It was, uh, I was funeral at the gravesite. Yeah. You know what was Rita's, Rita's favorite hymn? And Rita went to Radcliffe in Harvard grad school. She was a sophisticated lady. You know what was her favorite hymn? Her favorite hymn was this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me clean again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. It's like a Donald Duck song. (laughs) You know? You know what I mean, Josiah? It's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's weird. And Rita loved that song. Because this is the blood of Jesus. Rita loved communion. She just loved communion. Because Rita knew she was hopeless. And I'll tell you, she's been the most hopeful woman I've ever known in my life. If anybody should be able to get to heaven without the blood of Jesus, it should be Rita. And she had no hope except the blood of Jesus. So I hope all of you... Uh, I hope all of you will despair of yourselves. Don't worry, we're not judging you, but give it up and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Don't let our appearance and our vocabulary or anything fool you. We're filthy. Jesus said he came to save sinners, not the righteous. And it's flipped upside down in America today. It's like the good people go to church and the bad people don't. And it should be exactly the opposite. I don't want one good person in any church I ever serve. Let them go to the cosmetics counter of Nordstrom's. And they can put more paint on them. (laughs) And they can fool more people. (laughs) But sinners, this is your birthright. Jesus came to save sinners. Eh? Eh? Come on, eh? All right, eh. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, we read every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper.